Hi, I'm Maria Thea Harris or Velosos and you're listening to Soul Organized Style Podcast. Grab a cuppa because today's podcast is with Joe from Haptic and Hugh. Soul Organized Style Podcast acknowledges traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognizes the continuing connection to lands, waters and community. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to the Elders past, present and emerging. A big sponsor shout out goes to our two podcast friends and sponsors. The Australian Sewing Guild, who has been our Monday Daily Series regular, is now a sponsor of Sew Organised Style Podcast. Go to ozsew.org to check out the online workshops, sew-alongs, skills library and more. Our second sponsor is Tatiana's School of Couture as she launches it online. Go to her website to see her new online sewing classes and patterns. Thanks for letting us into your sewing room today. We're going to meet another podcaster who's just started her podcast. It's called Haptic and Hugh. I found out about it through a post that So Over 50 put out. Let's welcome Joe to Soul Organized Style Podcast. Hi, Joe. Thanks for coming on to the podcast. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. So I found out about Haptic and Hugh through So Over 50. Judith put out a repost about your podcast. While it's not sewing and it is weaving, the episodes that I've listened to are fascinating. Well, Haptic and Hugh is really about all kinds of textiles. I am a weaver, and so my expertise comes from that. But it's really about how textiles talk to us in all kinds of different ways. And so it's not just about weaving, it's about sewing and knitting and mending and about embroidery and about all kinds of textile making right the way down the ages. And I just think it's a topic that people instinctively know about and know is important, but they don't really think about it and they don't really verbalize it. And so what I was trying to do with Haptic and Hugh is to actually bring some of this out into the open. And you have done that so successfully with the episodes that I've listened to. Thank you. You're welcome. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background, Joe? Well, I suppose I'm a bit like the cat that's had nine lives. I think I'm on my third or my fourth, so I've got a few to go, so I feel okay. But I started life as a journalist and a reporter, and I became a television journalist for independent television news in London. And when I was in my 30s, I was mainly covering places like Northern Ireland, often politics in Washington and London, and also the conflict in former Yugoslavia. And then in my late 30s, I came to live in New Zealand. And I had a young child and a husband, and we just decided to throw everything up and come for a rest and live in New Zealand. And really to cover the gap that was going to be on my kind of career trajectory, I invented this thing called the West Pacific News Agency and made myself the president of it. And I was absolutely outraged to get work. People kept ringing me up saying, can you do this story or could you go to Tahiti and do the riots or could you come to Australia and do the bushfires? And I was like, well, I didn't expect to have to do any work, but if you insist, I'll do that. 
And at the same time, I just thought 30 million sheep can't be wrong. I need to learn to weave. And it was something I had wanted to do for a long time. And in New Zealand, I was incredibly lucky. I was living in Wellington and there was a night school not far away. And I could go to learn to weave once a week at night school. And it was just like, you know, lighting a flame. I suddenly discovered this entire world. And to me, it was the most wonderful world. And it's been part of my life ever since then. When I read your story and just listening to you now, you really, your career has blown me away. Absolutely blown me away. (laughs) To have been in those countries, the start of your career, you know, it makes sense why you took a break to New Zealand. I needed the break. When I came out, I remember being really exhausted, mainly by the conflict in former Yugoslavia and at the terrible violence that was going on there. And it wasn't very far away. These were countries we went to for holidays. Mm. These were people that we knew well. And these were refugees turning up on our doorsteps. And I remember coming to New Zealand and just feeling that it was all so far away, I didn't have to worry about it anymore. But New Zealand is its own place, as you know. And New Zealand and Australia have their own politics. And I was incredibly lucky because the then Prime Minister of New Zealand knew that I was working for the Times in London and I was working for the Los Angeles Times and Canadian Broadcasting and the BBC. And he used to take his plane out to the Pacific And he used to ring me up and they would say, we're not a travel agency, but if you want to come with us, there's a seat on the back of the plane. And I would have a file for every country that they used to go to. So they'd ring me up and say, I'm going to the Marshall Islands. And I would pull the file up for the Marshall Islands and say, I'm coming. Or they would say, we're going to Tonga or Western Samoa. And I would say, I've got a story for all of that. So I would go to these places which journalists would normally ever go to. And you would find me there covering the story. And then when I covered the story, I'd be in the shops going, that weaving, how did you manage that? Oh, that piece of embroidery is absolutely beautiful. And I'd be stacking all of this stuff in and bringing it home alongside the stories which I was doing for radio. So the combination was really excellent. You really did get to see a lot of the Pacific Islands then courtesy of the then Prime Minister. Yes, I did. I did. Bless him. (laughs) Bless him, exactly. So that excitement, you know, the the love of weaving that you found in New Zealand, you took that back to the UK with you, didn't you? I did. And I remember when I came back to the UK saying to the New Zealanders, well, it'll just be a desert when I get back. I don't think there's anything in Britain. And they said, don't be ridiculous. And when I got back, of course, there were the guilds of weaving, dyeing and spinning. And I joined those and I went back to being a political journalist in those days. But at the same time, I was also weaving and creating fabric and developing my own skills. And I had increasing numbers of friends who were spinners, sewers, menders, embroiderers, cross-stitchers. And I had these two kind of completely different lives and I never really spoke about each side of the life. So by day, if you like, I was in Westminster or in Paris or in Washington 
or in Brussels, standing in front of the camera, telling everyone about the political machinations. And by night and by weekend, I was this kind of secret yarnaholic, storing vast quantities of wool and cotton and silk, and also material and thinking about how I was going to use them. And somehow the two sides of life were vital to each other. I couldn't have managed each side without the other, but they never quite came together. Until this year? Well, until this year. And this year I decided that it really was the year when I should give myself the time to learn how to be a podcaster. And this is my lockdown skill. In Britain, we went through a long lockdown from late March right the way through until the end of May. And I decided that I did two things in lockdown. One was I made scrubs along with a fantastic local group here. And I don't think you should tell your listeners this, but I'm rubbish at the sewing machine. But I did, with a lot of help and support online, learn to make scrubs. And I made six sets of my own scrubs. And I know where they went because I made them quite distinctive and put slightly bizarre pockets on them. And they ended up with some doctors in an area of Somerset who like them and think they're well made. And I had to say to them, I will give you free repairs if the seams come undone or anything like that. So that was one side of lockdown. And then the other side was I had always wanted to tell the story of textiles because I think the stories are hidden. I think our lives are so much these kind of modern industrialized lives that we don't see this extraordinary reservoir of knowledge and skill that lies beneath it, which derives from textiles. You could tell the history of the world just by looking at textiles. And the more I read about this, the more fascinated I became by it. And so I learned how to become a podcaster. I learned how to do my own editing. And I learned how to put them online, just as you have learned. And that was my lockdown skill. And I thought, after that, I'm going to start. And I had this idea for a first series of six. And then if that went okay, I would think about a second series. But if everyone said, no, no, it's absolutely awful and nobody listens, then I could just very quietly pretend that I hadn't done it. <laughs> but I hope you are going to go ahead with a second series. I think I am, yes. Excellent. <laughs> People keep ringing me and they also send me emails with ideas for the next series. And I'm thinking, oh, maybe I'll do eight next time. I've got 10 ideas here. Hmm, how are we going to manage that? But yes, I, I will definitely do a second series. Great. So our listeners need to subscribe to Haptic and Hugh and make sure that they start from the first episode because that way they'll love the stories behind every piece of textiles that you describe. Thank you. The first episode is really the little introduction, which yeah. just tells you that I couldn't knit you a tea cosy if I tried, <laughs> but that while you are knitting your own tea cosies, because you're going to be much more skilled than I am at this, you should, it's a way of understanding all of the skill and the history that has gone into these things, which in some senses we almost take for granted. We take it for granted that we have yarn that makes beautiful material and we can go to the shop and buy that material. And when I think back into the history of how particularly women spent their lives learning these skills and in the Middle Ages in Europe, 
women never stopped spinning because they could not spin enough yarn for the weavers. And even when they were on horseback, they could talk on horseback, they could ride a horse, and they could spin at the same time. And they would just ride along spinning. To me, that was just an astonishing piece of information and knowledge. That is astonishing. The other group that is doing a series of blog posts about textiles of the world is the socialist group. I'll go and have a look at those because I'm always absolutely fascinated by some of the fantastic stories that lie behind all of this. They're stories from the sewing community. I know that when the socialists get stories, they make sure that they're well researched and uh, accessible as well. Good. I've got some blog posts which their stories, I hope they're well researched, I hope they're factual, which often are a starting point for me in creating the podcast. It's a nice way to begin to think about some of the issues. What career advice would you have given Jo Andrews at the age of 16 when she was leaving school? Would you have guided her down one path or the other that you've already taken? I think the thing I would have said to her was never forget that making with your hands is incredibly important. In those days, I was really bad at it. I'm very left-handed. I'm quite dyslexic. And I was really bad at kind of traditional making in sewing or knitting classes. My poor grandmothers tried to teach me to knit and failed completely. And I was their despair. I know that. They would be proud of me now because I can weave. But I think that to have the accompaniment of something absolutely physical to do and to make with your hands alongside whatever it is you choose to do with your brain is a fantastic balance. And it's a balance that will keep you well and happy all your life. And I think that's the advice I would give myself. Go be who you want to be, but Keep doing something with your hands because for your sanity, for your peace of mind, for your balance, for everything, it's the most wonderful thing in the world to do. You're so right. If listeners are interested in dabbling in weaving, where should they start? I would start online. There are some very good online courses on weaving. James Stafford in Canada does some excellent courses. If they are in Britain, and of course we have COVID, we have a wonderful system of guilds in almost every county and almost every area of Britain, and they teach spinning, weaving, and dyeing. Uh, And then there are some very good schools and some very good teachers. I talked to a weaver who has been my own tutor for a long time in the podcast called Janet Phillips, who at the age of 16 started wanting to be a weaver. She spent more than 50 years at the loom. And her book, Designing Woven Textiles, that's a great place to start. But weaving without a real human to guide you can be quite frustrating and quite difficult. There are people who get it and absolutely can do it straight up. I'm not one of those. And there are others for whom it comes a bit more slowly and they start to experiment, they start to play with it. But I think it's the same as it is for the sewers, that there is nothing like the magic of getting a loom ready and starting to weave with it 
and seeing that you are actually creating a piece of fabric beneath your hands. That is extraordinary. And I never, even to this day, I know how to do all of this. I know what's going to happen. But it's complete magic when you just start to put the yarn across the loom and very reasonably quickly this fabric just rolls out and you made that fabric. The machine didn't make it. You designed it. You made it. You determine how it looks. And that's a wonderful feeling. And you bring some of that magic to your podcast where you can actually hear the weaving happening in the background. Yes. (laughs) Unless you have nice sound that's going on. I got a bit stuck with the embroiderers because they're a bit quiet. You can't use the sound of embroiderers. So I'm back with, in the coming podcast, with some weavers who are the weavers to the Paris couture industry, and they produce 4,000 designs a year. And I walked into this weaving studio expecting to see computers and all kinds of new technology. Not a bit of it. They're weaving on New Zealand looms, just the same loom that I learned to weave on in New Zealand. And they are designing by hand in the old traditional way that is hundreds of years old. And they do 4,000 designs a year, 2,000 for each season on those little looms. On those little New Zealand looms, and none of it is computerized. They computerize it later. Uh Um, So (laughs) what they do is they actually have to try it out so they can see it on the loom. And they take it upstairs to Eve, who's the head designer. And she says, oui or non. And then it goes into the computer and it's there. But they have a photograph of it as well so that they know precisely what it should look like. So the actual test run is done by hand? Completely. Yeah. Okay. So it's done by hand. And then Eve, the head designer, will say, we need 10,000 meters of this. It's perfect. This will be this year's Chanel suiting material, and it will be in these colors. And she will send it down to the factory in Lyon, in southern France, and they will lace up their incredibly technologically advanced machines, and they will press a button but they will lace it up and do it entirely on the basis of what has been worked out on a little hand loom where you have a hand weaver pulling the levers and putting the thread through entirely by hand. And that's extraordinary to me. And they're creating that magic themselves on those New Zealand looms. On New Zealand looms. And they were a bit shocked when I was very excited by the fact that they were New Zealand looms but I did get excited by the fact that they were New Zealand looms. (laughs) That would have really raised your street cred with them too, the fact that you knew. Yes, I think it did. I was talking to them about the looms and how they worked, and I said to them, these are New Zealand looms, they're Ashfords. And they said to me, are they? And I said, yes, definitely. And they looked them up and they said, oh, you're right, they are. (laughs) So yes, it did raise my street credibility. But that's just the weaving. I think that all forms of using and thinking about textiles have an interest. And I can't make or design a lot of the things I'm talking about. One of my first podcasts was about Britain's first black textile designer, Althea McNish, who shouldn't be ignored. She has been largely forgotten. 
and her designs are absolutely stunning. And she was designing in the late 50s and the early 60s, and she designed dress fabrics for the queen. She designed the most beautiful murals for ocean liners going out to Australia and going across to America. She was really the most astonishing designer. And I couldn't come up with a fabric design if you left me with a piece of paper uh, between now and the end of time. But nonetheless, I recognize her contribution and the skill that she came at this with. I have great admiration for the sewers, and I do understand that. I have this thing where sometimes my fingers get itchy if I see some wool, and I just think, oh, I'd really like to have that wool. And I know that my friends who are sewers, sometimes you'll go into a fabric shop and you'll you'll see them feeling the fabric like this and you'll know that they've got itchy fingers in exactly the same way and they just say, mm, I think I'll have three meters of that. And you think that's going in the stash. Yes, it does. It goes into the stash. <laughs> Is there one thing that you'd like to leave our listeners with before we wrap it up? So keep making, but Here's a thought, and it's a really expression of how textiles have left a kind of secret mark on our modern lives. So I'm going to give you two words. One is to feel, and the other is text. Both of those words come from textiles because texere means to weave, and text means to weave with words. So that's one. And the other one is feel. I feel well. I don't feel well. It's a direct transfer over from to feel material. And there you've got it. You've got two words which are an everyday part of our lives, which we never think about when we use because we think we know what they mean. And yet they come from our hidden histories. Thanks so much, Joe. You're very welcome, Maria. You've made this interview so easy, Joe. <laughs> you have. Well, <laughs> you, I told you the difficulty is to shut me up. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. And such a, a pleasure to talk to you. And give my love to Australia. Thank you. Have a lovely day, listeners. This episode of So Organised Style Podcast was produced by me, Maria Thea Harris, with permission of Joe. Sound by bensound.com. You can subscribe to So Organised Style Podcasts, but with an S, not a Z, on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google, and from all good podcast distributors. Post any questions or suggestions you have on our podcast Instagram account or in our Facebook page. And subscribe to Haptic and Q because it's a really good podcast with well-researched information we look forward to joining you in your sewing room next time. Stay safe, everyone. <laughs>